Bienvenidos and welcome to the histories of Mexico. Episode 11, Tabasco Part 9. The Unseen Conquest. A la vuelta! Rosa legendaria, que son los hijos del sol. Rosa legendaria, que son los hijos del sol. Y tienen la piel morena, y enchido el corazón. Y tienen la piel morena, y enchido el corazón. Camino de la Chontalpa, voy cantando esta canción. Camino de la Chontalpa, voy cantando esta canción. Junto a estos versos vuela todito mi corazón. Junto a estos versos vuela todito mi corazón. Ay, 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 ay. Zumba. We are enjoying the song Camino de la Chontalpa, or Road of the Chontalpa, composed and performed by a beloved son of the capital, Villahermosa, Francisco José Hernández Mandujano, better known by his stage name of Chicoche. Chicoche would get his name from derivations of his first names, Chico, short for Francisco, and Che, a Mexican nickname for José. He became a popular musician, singer, and composer, most active during the 70s and 80s, typically seen sporting his signature overalls and square-rimmed glasses, indicative of his common working man image, style, and artistic subject matter. He was born on December 7, 1945, in the neighborhood of Tamulte de las Sabanas, famous for holding the first Danza del Caballito and the Festival del Maromo, both of which we covered in Episode 5, Descendants of the Puma. His father was a native of Teapa and worked in the newspaper called Impacto, founded by Francisco's uncle, while his mother was a teacher who sadly died while Chico was very young, leaving him to be raised by his sister, Matilde, who would later serve as his manager. He would study in the historic city of Querétaro, then taking a semester of law when he returned to Tabasco, but from a young age displayed a knack for playing a variety of instruments, including keyboards and synthesizers, which were just being introduced into the musical landscape, but it would be the guitar and saxophone that drew the young Chicoche to start pursuing a career in music. He bounced around with a few groups until finally forming his own group in 1968, known as La Crisis, with whom he became a musical phenomenon, recording more than 40 LPs and obtaining several gold and platinum records over 21 years. He would sadly pass on due to a heart attack while residing in his home in Coyoacán, Mexico City, on the 29th of March, 1989, just as his music was starting to reach international recognition. Despite this early end to a very bright future, his colorful and fascinating life will continue to be celebrated by his adoring fans and loving family for years to come. All the rights to the song Camino de la Chontalpa used in this episode belong to the Chicoche Estate and CHR Records. 
Now, today, I will go from a macro view of the Montejo's pacification of the entire Yucatan, including Tabasco, to take a closer look at the pacification of just the state itself, from the battlefields where it was being fought in. And since that means we're going to go straight into the Chontalpa region, I saw it fitting to include this icon of the state singing about the road to the very area we will be exploring. The road so many conquistadors are about to take. So I am going to establish the events in the Chontalpa, as it gives us a good idea of how most of the battles fought throughout Nueva España between the early colonists and natives transpired, with a few regional flavors mixed in and how the period of conquest transitioned into the period of colonization, and finally, full-on settlement and birth of the new Spanish-American colonial society. Let's quickly recap our last episode before we dive into the many campaigns and numerous captains that went to the Chontalpa to fail in an abundance of creative ways. In that last episode, we went through the events of Francisco de Montejo and his conquering family as they utilized the territory of Tabasco as a stepping stone to their true aims of conquering and controlling the Yucatan. From this macro look at the political shiftings of the new province of Nueva España, we can tell how the major players would include the Viceroy as the ultimate face of royal authority, several adelantados and captain generals as the military heads to lead the armed forces, the audiencias to serve as judiciary and legislative checks on the governmental heads, and finally the bishops to provide spiritual and religious guidance and leadership. Unfortunately, these guys often had such large scopes and jurisdictions to manage that they often missed out on the day-to-day -day administration that comes with truly defining and forging a new society. This task would thus be handed off to the many seemingly unimportant and forgettable mayors of the many villas that were beginning to appear all over in the New World. These precursors to future towns, cities, and even capitals would be established or run by the guys who would truly be on the ground for most of the actual development of the colonial period in Nueva España. Some of these figures will have very little information written about them, since I have just mentioned they were considered unimportant and forgettable but they will have a large part to play in the coming pacification of the Chontalpa region and Tabasco as a whole. And so we will be running through the many failed campaigns focused on pacifying the central Chontalpa and further describing this area as it will be the one you are likely to spend the most amount of time in if and when you visit Tabasco. This will also give me ample opportunity to explain as many of the place names as I could find, which is one of my absolute favorite things to do, since I find the exploration and discovery of the history and meaning of names to be one of the most fascinating pursuits in life. Why our very own names can have such rich history and deep meaning attached to it. They could refer to a figure in history, a celebrity, an aspiration, the name of a relative, or something self-created. And granted, there are names out there that don't feel as though they carry that deep of a meaning but every name came from somewhere and has an explanation. It is something that is carried with the person and in many ways helps define them and shape them from the point of view of others. And don't even get me started on the metaphysics of identity as it pertains to a location such as a river or a settlement. As a philosophy major, I could get comfortably lost for hours discussing that confusing can of worms. So hopefully, as we go through some of these names, you will see for yourself why I find them to be instrumental in the understanding of not only the physical location itself, but the surrounding people, environment, or events that truly come to define it. 
Somewhere along the way, I will be forced into a detour to introduce a few new administrative titles, which will aid us in bringing our scope back down from the heady heights of the Montejo's dream of a Yucatec empire reaching out in all directions, and bringing it back down in scale to focus on what all of these years actually looked like on the ground in Tabasco, since we have been talking a lot about how there would be a rebellion here or a rebellion there, but no real meat has been given to the stories of these rebels or their vicious struggles of life and death. So I would like to pay their lost cause some respect and give substance to these conflicts, the likes of which would be pervasive throughout the colonial era. Then, after the dust settles, we can witness the foundational days of the capital, Villahermosa, just in time for the pirates to arrive and immediately throw a freshly pacified region back into complete chaos. So we haven't really spoken much about the subregions of Tabasco since Episode 3, Tabasco Part 1, Emerald of the Southeast. But as a quick refresher, Tabasco is unofficially broken up into five subregions. The region where Potonchan and Santa Maria de la Victoria were located is found in the northeast and is where we have just spent a lot of our time. That is, the subregion known as Los Pantanos, or the Swamps due to the large number of, you guessed it, swamps present throughout the area, a fact the original conquistadors would discover to their great displeasure. Here, we find the municipalities of Centla, where Potonchan slash La Victoria would have been found in its northeast corner, while Macuspana and Jonuta share the space just south of Centla, with Macuspana closer to the center, and Jonuta bordering Campeche to the east. We won't spend too much time here today, but this region is vitally important as it is dominated by the many Usumacinta river systems through which the natives and later the Spanish could reach the many communities located to the south. And this would be the subregion called the rivers, or Los Rios, due to the very rivers I just mentioned. Here is where the ruins of Tortuguero, Moral Reforma, and Aguada Fenix, among others, are found among the jungled interiors of municipalities such as Tenosique, Palancan, and Emiliano Zapata, areas we covered in Episode 6, Tabasco Part 4, Lord of the Hollow Stick. The soon-to-be-important subregion of La Sierra, or the Peaks, is located on the other side of the Chapin Highlands, straddled by Tabasco's southern lands that include the municipalities of Jalapa, Tacotalpa, and Teapa, which also contain the magic city of Tapijulapa and is dominated by its cavernous jungles, considered to be the entrance to the Sierra de Chiapas, sharing much culture and history with its southern neighbors. Meanwhile, if we turn back from this point towards the coast and head north, down the river Grijalva, this time we enter the subregion of Central, which pretty much just refers to the capital, Villahermosa, and its surrounding communities, some of which include places like Chicoche's birthplace of Tamulte de las Sabanas. This finally leads us to the subregion of our focus, the Chontalpa. The name likely comes from the Chontal, the tribal ethnicity we have established is the most prevalent in the state, and the suffix pa, which in many branches of Maya, including Chontal, is a topographical suffix denoting the place of, or among the, or above something. So in this case, we have the possible translations of place of the Chontal, or among the Chontal. And this will not be the last we hear of this versatile little suffix. While the other regions are easy to define by their geographic features, such as swamps, rivers, or mountains, the Chontalpa is better defined by the rich history of people and culture that pass through its regions. 
Although in modern times it has come to be dominated by the Chontal Maya as a spiritual successor to Potonchan and the ancient trading kingdoms of the Chocos under their Tabaco, it used to encompass a wider range of tribes and ethnicities, which led to a heavily populated region, heavily focused on trading and perhaps more densely populated than the communities found along the coast, such as Potonchan or Xicalango, which were considered provincial capitals and would have been rather sizable in their own right. In the early 1500s, no one town in the Chontalpa was particularly large, but the high concentration of them is what led to the extreme density of natives the Castilian forces would encounter along their travels through the zone. The Chontalpa is generally considered to include the following municipalities. Starting from west and the border with Veracruz and heading east, we have Huimanguillo, which also counts as the largest of all municipalities and borders Chiapas to its south. Cárdenas is next to it, then Comalcalco, then Little Paraíso is in there just above Cunduacán, Nacajuca, and Jalpa de Méndez, which all surround the capital of Villahermosa. This region would become one of the most culturally important areas in Tabasco, and its development would give the territory a rich well of history from which to draw upon when establishing itself as a state in the budding Mexican Union, with these seven municipalities forming an essential part of that development. So let's run through the expeditions to pacify Tabasco, starting with the fatal failure that was the Cordoba expedition in 1517, then the smashing success that was the Cortesian landing in 1519, which saw Cortes establish the Villa de Santa Maria de la Victoria before leaving behind little else but an image of the Virgin, a large wooden cross, a handful of men, and a single shoe in the muddy banks of Potonchan, to next establish the Villa del Espíritu Santo, today known as the city of Coatzacoalcos, a mere 195 kilometers or 121 miles away on the Veracruzan coast, just west of the border with Huimanguillo, which would make its location a perfect staging point for the coming Cortesian campaigns launched into the east. Tabasco would then be left to its own devices for five years, with the native Tabascans of the central and Chontalpa regions just sort of going on with their lives as if nothing had changed. And I mean, this makes sense. The Spanish would take some time in making their presence felt in the native communities, but sure as winter, the Tabascan inhabitants would soon get to meet their future rulers face-to-face -face in a series of campaigns that would push through the central Tabascan land. It's interesting here to note that Cortes initially was attempting to establish complete control from the coast of the Gulf of Mexico to the highlands of Guatemala and beyond attempting to create a continuous land route across the base of the Yucatan Peninsula and out into both the Caribbean Sea through Honduras and down into the Pacific Ocean through the Chapin southern coasts, essentially attempting to establish and control the same empire Palenque had sought after nearly 700 years earlier. On this mission to claim the far side of the Caribbean, he would fatefully send one Cristobal de Olid to conquer in his name, which proved to be a mistake but he also sought to reach the Pacific through southern Chiapas and Oaxaca, and on this mission he fatefully sent Luis Marin, which did not prove as big a mistake as De Olid. Unfortunately for all their plans, both men would ultimately fail. De Olid because of treachery, and Marin through underestimation at how quickly he could get through the walls that were the warriors of the Chontalpa. So naturally we must ask, who is Luis Marin? 
Well, Luis Marin was born in the southern Andalusia region of Spain in Cadiz sometime in 1499 to a noble family of Genoese bankers with his father, known in Italy as Francesco Marini, holding considerable repute in the banking world and settling his roots in the busy port city of San Lucar de Barrameda, the very same port city that would see men like Francisco de Montejo, the elder, and various others depart from its historic port. Despite Marin's illustrious father's standing in the biz, it seems the banking lifestyle did not call to his son, and young Luis likely got lured away from banking by the many soldiers and weapons being loaded into the magnificent galleons and galleys, floating with their flags whipping in the brisk sea air. These interests would thus push him into the path of a much more exciting career in the business of conquering. He would be in his late teens when he participated in the conquest of Cuba alongside Don Diego de Velázquez y Cuellar, and was around 20 when he embarked on a flotilla under the direct orders of one Francisco de Saucedo, known as El Pulido. Pulir is to polish in Spanish, so in this sense, El Pulido meant the well-polished, but we can also understand it as Francisco de Saucedo, the fine. El Pulido would die during one of the many retreats from the Aztecs of Tenochtitlan in 1520, which meant Marin was promoted on the spot and found himself taking orders directly from Hernán Cortés from this point onward. Cortés would take note of this young and energetic commander who was proving a valuable asset, and his performance with the Aztecs earned him a spot in the pacification of Veracruz that came after the fall of Tenochtitlan, where he again gained the recognition of Cortés, who essentially assigned him the task of cleanup duty. Marin's orders would then direct him towards the mountainous regions of Chiapas and southern Tabasco in efforts to quell any native rebellions and clear the way for the envisioned envelopment of the entire southern portion of the country. Despite his rough tasks and often hostile missions, it seems Marin occupied the same small space as men like Juan de Grijalva and is remembered by his travel companions as a kind-hearted gentleman, even during the many military excursions he was sent on, a number of which Luis could be seen personally participating in the frontline fighting. He received plenty of battle scars and injuries in the process, but according to Bernal, whenever he could, he would refuse to take slaves and return custody of prisoners, especially women and children, back to their people in an attempt to peacefully resolve conflicts, a tactic which would have mixed results that ultimately came down to the disposition of the natives themselves, but still pretty remarkable that he even tried. Those who had decided to fight would not be dissuaded from violence by such an act, but many native tribes would come to appreciate the even-handed treatment they received from men like Marin. Treatment they would quickly come to realize was certainly not the norm for most conquering forces that came to their lands. Cortés first sent Marin to push into Chiapas in 1523 through the Mexican Valley, but this proved too difficult for the men and horses, so they opted to go through the central Tabascan region, where they had heard grumblings of rebellions starting to spread, but the riverways that it contained could be easily navigated to reach Marin's objectives. So with the help of our old friend Bernal Díaz del Castillo, he set off towards the Chontalpa in early 1524, crossing the river Tonala, which separates Veracruz and Tabasco, and entering the modern-day municipality of Huimanguillo in early March. This trek would be slow and difficult given the abundance of rivers and swamps in the region, but they arrived at the pueblo of Cupilcom, or Cupilco, which translates roughly to the place of the Copilis, 
with a kopili being a piece of Nawa dresswear reserved for the leaders of the Nawa, such as the caciques or the head priests. According to Dr. Diogenes Lopez Reyes, Cupilco was also the name of one of the Choco provinces, known as Kos, which fell under the Tabaco of Potonchan, as a few of the following locations will do as well. In pueblos like Cupilco, the Chontal, Maya, and Nahua worlds would see constant interaction and blending, as this was on the edge of the mostly Nahua municipality known as Simatan, one of the three Nahua-founded communities that existed in this region, the other two being our well-known Xicalango to the northeast, and the other Awalulco, which is the modern-day municipalities of Cárdenas and Paraíso, and the northern coastline of Huimanguillo. The name of Awalulco is fairly simple, as it means, roughly, place crowned by the water, or place around the water, and given its proximity to the coast, this makes perfect sense. The Simatan and Chicalango meanings, meanwhile, are not defined in any source I've yet come across, and while I did take a stab at personally deciphering them, my attempt was based on no experience in doing this sort of work at all, and likely nowhere near the mark. So I will instead double my efforts to get in touch with the native Nahua speaker, who hopefully will lend the help and knowledge necessary to crack the meaning of some of these locations I would very much like to learn about. Upon arriving at Cupilco and subsequent villages, the incoming soldiers would experience one of three things. The first was a quiet but empty town, with not a single person available to demand submission from. Which okay, rude, but afforded the Spanish a chance to rest and gather supplies. Although oftentimes they would find these settlements or pueblos empty of all resources or even burnt down. The other two options, however, involved encountering the locals, demanding submission, getting rejected, then engaging in a small battle, followed by either the inhabitants pledging submission or the inhabitants telling the Spanish to kindly get bent and then frustratingly melting away into their swamps, having pledged absolutely nothing to anyone and the natives reserve the right to skip all of the initial steps and just go ahead and ambush the Spanish on the road or outside of the walls of their many cities. In both of these cases, the battles were small only in scale of participants and could last for hours, devolving into truly trench-like and bloody affairs, with volleys of arrows traded with volleys of gunfire, the occasional macana on sword charge, and if they were available, the terrifying horses always capable of breaking the native spirits with a well-executed charge. In almost every case, even the ones where the locals immediately pledged submission, as soon as the Spanish forces left the area, the locals would re-emerge to reclaim their homes or immediately go back on their pledges of submission the moment they noticed the Spanish guard was down. As Luis Marin and his men entered into Copilco, the locals took the third option and hastily decided to pepper the invaders with some Chontalpin hospitality before the Spanish had a chance to thoughtfully offer them complete subjugation. But soon they were fleeing in the face of Spanish guns. Then, according to Bernal, they arrived at Cucultiupa and Huaytalpa, pueblos along the outskirts of the larger settlement known as Simatan, the future Cunduacan and the capital city of the regional Co of the same name. At this point, a group of messengers, including Captain Marin and his lieutenant Bernal Diaz del Castillo, approached the walls to kindly demand the inhabitants surrender and pay tribute to their new masters. They were met with the least desirable weather one could hope for in the Chontalpa, a shower of arrows. 
one so vicious that it wounded the Captain Marine and nearly ended our dear chronicler's life before he could pass his many experiences down to us through the ages. Thankfully, he survived to write of his experiences and said, quote, Three squadrons of archers and lancers came out to us, and at the first volley with arrows they killed two of our companions, and they shot me in the throat, and so much blood came out that my life was in great danger. And let us stop talking about this and say that our Lord Jesus Christ felt it would serve him to see us escape from dying there, and in the canoes we crossed that river that is very large and deep and holds many alligators in it. End quote. Poor Bernal cannot seem to catch a break in Tabasco, but he would survive this ordeal, including the alligators, like so many before this. However, he and his captain and their small messenger party would be cut off from the rest of their men, wandering the wilderness of central Tabasco for eight days before reuniting with the rest of their company and deciding to return to Coatzacoalcos to recoup and plan a new strategy. The river this route forced the messenger party to take is believed to be the Rio Mezcalapa, a Nahuatl word which comes from the word mezcali and refers to the mezcales, the agave plants that produce the alcoholic beverage, famous for at times containing a worm at the bottom of their bottles. We have also already encountered the suffix pa, which comes from apan and refers to place of, among, or above. So mezcalapa can be place of the mezcales, but in the case of a river, we can also interpret flowing through. And so, Rio Mezcalapa could translate to river that flows through the mezcales, or just river of mezcales. This river is itself a tributary of the much longer Grijalva, as it snakes its way through the region and connects the lower plains of the Chontalpa region with the steppes of La Sierra and highlands of Chiapas. Much like the Usamacinta River dominates the Rios and Pantanos subregions and connects them to the Peten highlands of Guatemala to its south. Bernal next tells us of how Marin would meet with Cortes in Coatzacoalcos, telling him about the difficulties in Tabasco and predictably requesting more men and guns. Honestly, these guys can't seem to get anything done unless they request help for it three times. Cortes would give Marin 30 additional men, as well as fresh supplies and munitions, to go back out there for his second expedition into Tabasco. This time, they would enter Chiapas first, through the Oaxacan municipality of Tejuantepec, and then attempted to enter the Chontalpa from the south, going through the region once called Teapan, but is now known just as Teapa, as well as passing by the settlement called Tecomagiaca, populated by communities of Zoques and Chols. Teapan was another of these coals under the Tabaco hegemony, and its name comes from the Nahuatl Tea and Pan, with Tea discovered to refer to Tetli, signifying rocks or stone, and Apan, again, the suffix in this case meaning flowing over or atop of. So we have the rough translation of the river that flows over the rocks, or the river of rocks, while in Zoque, the meaning is more akin to riverbank of rocks, or the rocky riverbanks. And in both instances, the name is likely referring to the Teapa River, which flows through the municipal capital of the same name. A river which connects up with the Grijalva further along its flow, connecting this area to the central lowland regions and directly to Villahermosa, a fact that we will helpfully need to remember for next episode. Once again, we turn to Bernal, who says, quote, We arrived at more pueblos they call Tecomayate and Teapa, where the houses were close together and the provinces held a large population. 
and here lay my encomiendas, given to me by Cortés, and I even now have the titles signed by Cortés. End quote. It is due to this entry that Bernal is often credited with founding the colonial villa that would become the Teapa of modern day. However, if the Cortesian forces thought they would find an easier path into the Chontalpa through Teapa, they would be sorely mistaken, for the local Zoques and Chols presented as fierce resistance to the entering invaders as the Simantecos from the moment the expedition crossed this particular river that flows over rocks. As per usual, after several hours of fighting, the natives fled into the jungle, and the Spanish tended to their wounded for several days before finally pushing past the initial resistance and heading down the river towards Simatan. As the soldiers approached the pueblo of Talatupan, again at the outskirts of Simatan, they were met by a dash of arrows, which they survived, but caused them to suffer several casualties. The natives would abandon Talatupan after the Spanish managed to defeat them on the field after another several hours of grueling combat. But the natives would have the last laugh as the Spanish entered the city to discover a burning town empty of any supplies or Talatupantecos to face retribution. The Spanish then took the smoldering ruin of the town and spent two days there before tiring of the hostile climate and meager gains and terrible weather deciding once again to return to Coatzacoalcos and brave the potential disappointment of Cortes. On their journey back, Marin and Diaz would pass through and document various of the neighborhoods, communities, and pueblos that would come to make up some of the most important locations within the Chontalpa region, notably Nacashushuca, Guimango, Teotitlan, Cupilco, and Ulapa. A few of these names we can actually begin providing explanations for, starting with Cunduacan, which Simatan itself would turn into, and the city would lend its name to the larger municipality. Cunduacan comes from the Mayan Cumhuacan, meaning place of the pots, bread, and snakes, or place of the maize, pots, and snakes. To the best of my deductions, this place specialized in the production of clay pots, tortillas, which are technically very thin, unleavened breads, and clearly this region would deal with an overabundance of snakes. The modern municipality of Cunduacan is also known by the nicknames of the Athens of Tabasco, or the Cradle of Illustrious Men, given the number of famous Tabascans that have originated from this region who will weave in and out of our future episodes. Guimango, with a G, would one day be changed to Huimango, with an H, then the city lended its name to the municipality of Huimanguillo. Huimango itself comes from the Nahuatl, Huimanco, meaning place of the main caciques, or place of great authorities. And we will explore Huimanguillo more when we speak about the Zoque, and this ancient city of Huimango within the Chontalpa is close to the modern location of the Ayapanecos, or the Cloud People an extremely isolated branch of the Zoques, who separated long ago and mixed with the Mixtecos, Nahuas, and local Chontal Mayas, mixing up so much that, like the Oaxacan Chontal, they are now recognized as their own tribal identity with their own language and religion. A group of people I hopefully will find time to talk about in the near future. The name Teotitlan comes from Nahuatl as well and means land of the gods, but no further explanation is given and the Nahuas can be unnecessarily epic like that sometimes. Cupilco, we have also said, comes from the place of the Copilis, those fancy outfits the Nahua leadership like to lord over their subjects. 
And Cupilco would also one day come to hold one of the most beautiful churches I could recommend within the Tabascan state. And finally, Ulapa, whose name I can't seem to find the meaning of, but likely lent its name to the future municipality of Jalapa, which will be formed just south of the Chontalpa and be explored a bit more in the next episode. Ulapa is also mentioned by Dr. Diogenes as one of the communities that fell under the call of Cupilco. Bernal Diaz also mentions how this 1524 expedition passed through Akashuishuika, which would one day be changed to Nakashushuka and later be simplified for the sake of Castilian tongues into Nakahuka. Here we have another beautiful example of demeaning naming, since Akashushuika is a Nahuatl phrase roughly translating to place of the pale faces or place of the discolored faces. And Bernal Diaz relates that the people did indeed have pale faces, likely due to the high number of mosquitoes that simply adore the swampy environment, leading to widespread malaria infections. According to the National Library of Medicine, malaria does indeed lower the red blood cell count and cause a yellow coloring of the skin and eyes. Why this particular community had more malaria than its neighbors doesn't seem to be investigated much by anyone. But the pervasiveness of the swamps throughout this entire region would lead me to believe that the malaria would be more widespread. But I am neither a pathologist or someone who is very good at staying on topic, so let me solve the easiest of those issues and get back to the story. After leaving behind the sick inhabitants of Akashushuika, the retreating party finally crossed the Rio Tonala and back into the safety of the Villa del Espíritu Santo, a.k.a. Coatzacoalcos having yet again failed in their mission to pacify Tabasco. This was still the same month of March 1524 that Luis Marin had initially set off in, and already he and his lieutenant had been wounded, he had lost eight men, three horses, and had held zero cities. Not the best look for your boss. Cortes doesn't seem to have been particularly upset with Marin, probably trusting the man did his best and only left when he absolutely believed it was the best course of action, which it most likely was. Nonetheless, Cortes would decide to go in a new managerial direction for the next upcoming campaign. So Cortes sent a fresh squadron of men the following month of April 1524, and interestingly, he went from sending one of his youngest commanders to the complete other side of the age gap by selecting one very eager but much older, Rodrigo Rangel, to yet again attempt to pacify the rebellious province of Simatan, which was now buzzing like a hornet's nest with well-armed and well-alerted locals. Rangel was born in Medellin, within the Badajoz municipality of Spain, way, way back in 1447, making him one of the oldest conquistadors to participate in Cortes' campaigns, and his advanced age coupled with his near-constant illness made him a rather sour and irritable man to be around. But Cortes clearly saw him fit, and so off he went into the next phase of these Chontalpan Crusades. Rangel would leave Coatzacoalcos less than a week after Luis Marin had returned, proving Cortes likely had this expedition planned in advance, and maybe even as reinforcement for Marin and Bernal. But when Marin returned early, Rangel was set forth with around 100 soldiers, including a cavalry unit and 26 riflemen. As the Spanish forces began to march, Bernal Diaz would once again be counted among their ranks, along with most of the experienced men from the previous missions. Together, they all crossed the Rio Tonala, entering the province of Agualulco, once again crossing the Chontalpa, where the majority of the pueblos were supposedly peaceful, and things seemed calm, 
and as the soldiers passed quiet-looking village after quiet-looking village, perhaps feeling as though things were suddenly too quiet. As Rangel Bernal and their men came within five leagues of Simatan, from behind the weeds and swampy vegetation began to appear a large number of Simanteco warriors who were beginning to encircle the approaching company of men. The Simantecos, it seems, had not been idle since Luis Marin had put them on notice that this was going to be a long-term struggle, as Bernal next describes the following scenes. Quote, on the edge of the swamp, most of the warriors of the province of Simatan were together, and they had made some fences and barricades with sticks and thick timbers, and they formed inside and with some parapets and arrow slits through which they could shoot arrows. Suddenly they gave us such a good showering of arrows and wooden slings that they killed seven horses and wounded over eight soldiers, including the very same Rangel who was riding a horse and was given an arrow in the left arm. End quote. Well, how about that? The Simantecos, it seemed, were creating full-on wooden walls and fortifications, not only to repel the invaders, but actually retaliate with arrows through the constructed slits and over the parapets with great effect. We don't get many depictions of Mesoamerican warfare in modern media, but I can guarantee you none of them have ever imagined the natives constructing anything such as this, and I personally cannot wait to see it represented accurately in some form of media in the near future. Initially, a wave of cavalry was ordered by Rangel, but this would prove the wrong move, as the horses could do little but die as they crashed against a wall of wood and became enveloped in a haze of arrows. Bernal then heroically claimed he took control and ordered the musketeers to unleash their own volley back at the defenders. After these initial clouds were dispersed by a hail of Spanish bullets, the Simantecos melted back into their swampy surroundings, and the Spanish turned their attention to their wounded as they stared incredulously at the defenses built by a people they initially considered primitive and easily brushed aside. The following day, they kept pushing towards Simatan, with Bernal, it seems, leading a contingency of men through the new yet equally abandoned towns they encountered. And here too they met resistance with Bernal and his fellow experienced soldiers advising that Rangel and the horses be kept in the back, while the men on foot and crossbows be put in front and moved methodically through the makeshift barricades found all over the swampy paths they were now forced to take. As they approached, from the foliage along the road, a fresh wave of Simanteco archers and spearmen let loose their deadly barrage and Bernal was only saved by his cotton armor, which he claims stopped seven arrows from piercing him. However, he did not leave completely unscathed, sustaining an injury in his own leg. Rangel, watching all of this, must have thought that he ought to make himself useful, and so ordered the cavalry to go charging into the fray. However, as Bernal and the weathered veterans had predicted, the vegetation and muddy terrain meant the horses could not run effectively, so when the ordered knights arrived at their intended target, they did so with a complete lack of speed or momentum, then either got stuck or were forced to turn around awkwardly in the dangerously narrow spaces before they and their horses became little more than mounted pincushions. More riflemen and crossbowmen were mobilized, and the battle continued on for several hours, ending the way all these affairs had ended before, with the Simantecos retreating into the swamps and back to their city after inflicting numerous and painful wounds upon the Spanish invaders. 
Eventually, the battalion managed to encounter increasingly populated villages all on the outskirts of Simatan, but places Bernal neglects to name, likely since the natives were all too busy fighting him to actually get a name squeezed out of them. Eventually, they arrived at a pueblo where they found a sprawling living center with large cabins constructed among the very swamp itself. There were numerous houses that had been clearly converted for the purpose of war, as Bernal could note several slits and openings added to the many walls through which arrows could easily be shot through and spears thrust at passerbys. This made the traversal of the village a slow and precarious process as each house was approached with extreme caution, but eventually some natives were spotted bursting from inside one of the houses just as it was being approached. As these natives ran away from the soldiers down a narrow stretch of buildings, Bernal claims he and his fellow veterans preached caution to the eager Rangel and practically begged him not to, quote, out of greed to reach and spear them, go running after them at the free rain, end quote. Rangel took their cautions into careful consideration, carefully crumpled them up into a little ball, and tossed them behind his back as he rammed both heels into his poor horse-powered accelerator and tore after his fleeing glory at a speed that can best be described as a full-on free reign. No doubt yelling Leroy Jenkins or some other absurd battle cry as he charged after the well-laid ruse, while his stunned knights stared at his cloud of dust before jumping into action to rush and attempt to catch up with their very excited commander. The horses, of course, got stuck in the mud, leaving the men sitting on their backs practically begging to have holes filled in them, as the onlooking simantecos waited nearby to happily comply with the Spanish desire to be pelted with every painful projectile in the vicinity. The lucky victims of this deadly deluge perished during the initial volleys, but the unlucky ones who survived the projectiles would instead have to watch as teams of obsidian knife-wielding units expertly crawled along the mud to reach the stuck men, then dragged the horrified soldiers off of their horses and carry them kicking and screaming back to their town and priests, alive enough to be sacrificed to the onlooking and ever-thirsty gods. I mean, talk about an absolutely terrifying experience. Bernal has this to say on Rangel's ill-fated charge, quote, And the first one to drown in them was Rangel himself, and there they killed his horse. And if they had not been rescued quickly, many Indians would have laid down in those bad swamps to help him out and brought him alive to their city to be sacrificed. And he still came out disheveled, thanks to the gashes he received on his head. End quote. Rangel, it seems, may have been old and eager, but his little stunt had made two things perfectly clear to the rest of his men. Rodrigo Rangel was no coward. And Rodrigo Rangel was the absolute worst person to be leading this expedition in extremely hostile territory. The Spanish so far had already lost 12 men and a heartburn-inducing 11 horses, along with many in their number sporting some gnarly battle scars, with Rangel himself complaining of a splitting headache, likely due to the near splitting his head had just avoided. The Spanish retreated to a nearby town they found abandoned, but even here they were besieged on all sides by Simanteco troops and it took considerable effort to repel them. Bernal's account gives us an idea of the undesirable conditions the Spanish would face all throughout the Tabascan campaigns, with the many swarms of mosquitoes that did not rest day or night, the hot and suffocating humidity, coupled with endless raining, 
rivers full of alligators, trees hiding jaguars and other unseen terrors, and even the occasional bat that would descend on the soldiers to take a quick nibble and sample some of the new food sources helplessly trapped in the hostile jungle. Add to this blissful scene the scores of native warriors constantly harassing the outskirts of their encampment, and you can imagine that some of the freshly arrived soldiers from Spain had been thoroughly disillusioned from the glorious stories they had heard back in the motherland. The soldiers demanded that Rangel take them back to Veracruz, having had just about enough of everything, most of all Rangel himself, and Rangel almost caved and turned them all around. However, he was reminded by Bernal Diaz del Castillo, who had already made this trip twice and personally must have not wanted to come back again if they failed, noted that returning now, having come to the very doorstep of Simatan, might not make Cortés very happy. Rangel appears to have been spooked by this ominous bit of advice, or the head wounds clouded his judgment. Regardless, he decided to keep pushing towards the settlement of Simatan. Eventually, they did indeed arrive at Simatan, and the Spanish company managed to finally enter the troublesome city. Yet the defenders had left them one last welcoming gift by lighting most of the dwellings and structures ablaze, simultaneously removing any valuable supplies or resources from the vicinity. Oh, and of course, the place was completely abandoned, except for 15 prisoners the soldiers managed to capture from amongst the smoldering ruins and surrounding land. The next day, Rangel sent out various of these indigenous prisoners to demand that their fellow townsfolk return and pledge submission to the Spanish king, which the prisoners turned messengers gladly agreed to do and enthusiastically promised to return with all the townsfolk in no time at all. Unsurprisingly, they were never seen or heard of again, and Rangel would sheepishly wipe the egg off his face the following day, instead sending 50 soldiers out in search of the missing villagers. But each time the Simantecos were spotted, they fled deeper into the swamps and further upriver into the steppes of the densely forested highlands of the Sierra sub-region. And it would not be the thunderstorm of arrows and spears that did the Spanish in, but rather this incessant game of cat and mouse that developed in the swamps of the Chontalpa. The Spanish soon ran out of supplies, water, and the will to keep chasing their quarry, and eventually Rangel figured he would prefer a bitter Cortés than a painful and drown-out death in the jungle any day. So the Spanish would once again return to Coatzacoalcos for the third time in the same year, defeated and having only captured a handful of natives and claimed a smoldering ruin. Now, if Cortés was unhappy with Rangel, it appears the elder conquistador had managed to earn some measure of forgiveness due to his injuries and ever-present illness. Rangel is an interesting personality for sure. He's actually been around since Cuba, when Diego de Velázquez and Hernán Cortés had their fateful falling out. So Cortés had probably grown a liking to the man after so many years of faithful service. Both Rangel and Cortés were also from the same hometown of Medellín, so there was also this connection garnering some measure of insulation from any actual repercussions for failure. And in reality, the rod would never really be Cortés's style unless you betray his trust, that is, in which case Cortés held no sympathy for you, as Cristóbal de Olid is about to find out. Rodrigo Rangel, meanwhile, would soon return to Mexico City, and in 1526 went on to become a regidor, a kind of participant within the local municipal councils known as cabildos, or ayuntamentos. Rodrigo Rangel would be one of 12 regidores in Mexico City, 
But he's a little bit more interesting when he held failed conqueror of Florida, Panfilio de Narvez, prisoner during said failed conqueror's misadventures in Veracruz. And a lot more interesting when he commits some pretty blasphemous crimes against his religion, and in particular, the Virgin Mary. So there is where we will dive a bit deeper into his lore, as his is a fun and lighthearted tale that I'll keep in my back pocket to lighten up an otherwise pretty dark and depressing topic of ecclesiastical crimes and their creative punishments at the hands of the Mexican Inquisition. For now, Cortés didn't have much time to dwell on the failures of either Luis Marín or Rodrigo Rangel, as he would be faced with troubling dangers from within, as this is around the time when Cristóbal de Olid, failed seeker of Grijalva, fatefully decided to turn on his new captain in favor of the man he had known since childhood, Diego de Velázquez, warlord of Cuba. We do not have time to get into the intricacies of this internal dispute and the many pieces involved, but Cortés decided to send both a nautical response to de Olid's treachery, led by his cousin Francisco de las Casas, and a personally led land excursion to both map out and establish a land route from Veracruz to the Honduran and the Caribbean shores of the Yucatán. This excursion would result in the most detailed exploration of the Tabascan territory to date, and would serve future explorers and administrators vitally as some of the only descriptions of the mostly untamed and wild areas of southern and eastern Tabasco. Cortés left for this mission to Honduras, known as La Marcha a las Jibueras, at the end of 1524, with 130 soldiers on horseback, 120 musketeers, and some 3,000 native auxiliary forces taken from the various tribes in the recently conquered Central Mexican Valley. He would also send along some boats carrying heavy guns to the Villa de Santa Maria de la Victoria by sea to later be sent up the Grijalva River to meet him deep in Cimatan territory. Cortés, likely out of fear that leaving them behind might lead to unwanted trouble, would also bring along with him La Malinche and recently captured leader of the Aztecs, the final Tlatuani, Cuauhtémoc, who Cortés would tragically and unceremoniously elect to strangle on this very trip somewhere in the jungles of Tenosique. We will go through this expedition quickly and stop to describe some names of places we may be familiar with, but the story would go much as it did for Luis Marín and Rodrigo Rangel, with the natives almost always fleeing at the sight of the advancing forces, which found it particularly hard to traverse the many rivers and swamps in their way. Cortés would send Bernal ahead to Cimatán to secure the peace of the Cimantecos, who, despite being destined to continue rebelling, this time around, agreed to not trouble the army as it moved across the territory, likely hearing of the 3,000 native soldiers the army would be composed of and wanting absolutely no part in that kind of attention. With a diplomatic victory secured, Bernal safely returned from the heart of the Chontalpa and Cortés departed with his sizable force out of Coatzacoalcos, first crossing the Tonala River and arriving at the edge of the Awalulco communities of northeastern Huimanguillo. Then he pushed further into Awalulcan territory and entered the Cardenas municipality and passed close to the site of La Rambla, the coastal community where Juan de Grijalva's expedition had passed and witnessed locals brandishing spears at them from the shore. Rambla here means to rumble or to shake, and so this community of Awalulco was named La Rambla after the shaking spears, which would one day be changed to Barra de Santa Ana, 
and then, after the anti-religious reforms of the 1900s, renamed after a famous Tabascan general as Sanchez Magallanes, the community which now carries the torch for the place once crowned by water. Cárdenas itself is named after a famous Tabascan, one Dr. José Eduardo de Cárdenas y Romero, a Presbyterian defender of the Indians during one of the harshest periods of treatment throughout the whole colonial era. He would serve as a deputy in the court of Cadiz in 1811, a year before most of the Spanish colonies would be in rebellion in South and Central America, and he would donate his lands in the Villa de San Antonio de los Naranjos, which would evolve into the modern city of Heroica Cárdenas, the municipal capital of the municipality of Cárdenas. Next, the army found the Mesapa River, which is another name for the Mezcalapa we mentioned earlier, that is, the river of the Mezcales, where they tied their boats two by two to float their horses down, according to Bernal, and arrived at a community known as Iquinwapa, which does still exist and is located in Jalpa de Mendez, deeper into the center of the region, a testament to the navigability these rivers once provided the people that utilized them. At this point, Cortés created the first of several bridges he would utilize to transport his massive number of men, horses, and supplies. This bridge would spit them out at the community of Cupilco, meaning we are once again in the heart of the Chontalpa region. After crossing the community of Nacashushuca and the poor malaria-infested inhabitants within, they would arrive at the river once known as the Rio Tabasco, called such since it connected this interior region with the coastal capital of Potonchan and the Tabaco. By now, however, it had been several years since it was changed to the Rio Grijalva after the European man who discovered it, which the Cortesian army followed until arriving at a confluence of three rivers known as Tres Lomas, or Three Hills, a site which years later would see the establishment of a small community called Villa Carmona, that grew out of necessity into a new capital, that of San Juan de Bautista, which would later become Villa Hermosa. Here, Cortés would call for the guns from La Victoria to join him as he looked to push further into the uncharted territory. These guns would arrive a few days later, along with several refugee colonists begging Cortés to do something about the considerable ordeal they had been living within the Villa de Santa Maria de la Victoria, which Hernán had practically abandoned them in. They had run out of food early on and thus resorted to stealing from the natives, which predictably left the natives less than excited to have them about. Cortés listened solemnly to their pleas and did the Spanish colonial equivalent of sending thoughts and prayers by promising to send aid eventually and constructing a large wooden cross upon the site where their grievances were heard. The neighborhood that exists on this very site in Villahermosa is today known as El Barrio de Santa Cruz, or the neighborhood of the Holy Cross, because of this cross erected by Cortés for the benefit of the Victoria colonists. Next, the expedition would continue up the Tabasco River until arriving at the predominantly Mayan community of Zaguatán, which is the modern site of the historic municipality of Jalpa de Méndez. We will cover Jalpa a bit later on, but Zaguatán is disputed in many sources that I've looked at, so I'm going to hold off on any sort of speculation or breakdown until I have had more concrete information. The Zaguantecos would abandon Cortés and his men in the night, leaving them without guides, and thus Cortés sent word back to La Victoria to request more natives be brought back to help him traverse the uncharted jungles. Fifty canoes arrived with supplies and men from La Victoria, 
while fresh guides were sent from Teapa and Tecomagiaca, along with more food. It's tough to place Cortez's numbers exactly at this point, but all these men combined could not save them from aimlessly wandering through the jungle for 20 long days, unable to traverse the endless and imposingly muddy terrain. At long last, the army stumbled upon some natives who agreed to help them out of the maze of rivers and swamps to reach the pueblo of Chilapan, which was located in Centla, the land among the Maizal. As community after community was discovered by the Spanish and written down in a letter or on a crude map, they would turn to their Nahua-speaking guides for the names. And whether these names were the actual names or just made up by the guides who were put on the spot to name locations far away from their own lands, the results would be the same, and a multitude of Mayan communities managed to end up named in a language not their own. From Chilapan, the army passed into the communities that made up Temascatepec, which is the modern-day city of Tepetitan in Macuspana. Cortes here built another bridge over the river Chilapa, but again, this area would be abandoned when he arrived, with the Maya having fled in the face of this enormous host. Macuspana, for its part, has several proposed etymologies, each as interesting as the one before. The first one I'll mention because it's the one I believe least likely, cited as coming from a corruption of the names Marcos and Juana, the presumed founders of the settlement that would become the modern-day municipal capital, also called Macuspana. The more likely explanations, in my opinion, come from either the Nahua phrased Macuichpana, which means place of the five sweepings or place of the five cleansings, or the Zoke, which have their own phrase of Macupane, meaning place where the priest goes, or place where the priest visits. And with these two potential etymologies, we can get an idea of what this area was to the local natives, a spiritual place that represented both extreme danger and hostility, coupled with profound beauty and knowledge. This was a holy place where only the sacred men of the village dared to venture, much like in the Australian bush or the Himalayan mountains, the most dangerous or remote of places often provide the most spiritually appealing locations, and Macuspana would serve this kind of role for the Chontal and Nahua inhabitants that surrounded it. Here, the Spanish regrouped for five days before moving towards the city of Itztapan, where it is believed the modern-day municipal capital of the Emiliano Zapata municipality is currently found. The name of Itztapan is unclear, but in Nahuatl, Itztatl means salt or white, and pan, we have come to learn, means something along the lines of in or among. So Itztapan, we can imagine, means something like among the salt or among the white land. My theory on why this name might have been selected is that merchants coming from the lowland communities such as Comalcalco that produce salt and other coastal resources met and traded for highland resources such as cacao, bird feathers, and tree resin, exchanging the precious commodities at waypoints such as Itztapan, where the two worlds were most likely to intersect. The municipality itself would not be born for several decades until it was christened the Mountain of Christ by some passing Franciscan monks on the route to the city of Tenosique de Piño Suárez, further to the south. Mountain of Christ in Spanish is Monte de Cristo, and so Monte Cristo was born, which would be changed to Emiliano Zapata, the name of a famous revolutionary general during the anti-religious reforms of one Tomás Garrido Canaval who we have not mentioned in a while, but whose reign in power would have massive effects on the land, as this particular situation gives us a clear example of. 
After spending eight days in Itztapan, Cortes and his horde of men moved to the pueblo of Tatahuitalpa, which would later become the modern municipal capital of Balancan, now known as Balancan de Dominguez. Balancan managed to retain its Mayan name and is seemingly a combination between the words for jaguar and serpent, Balam and Can. So we can imagine this is the land of jaguars and snakes, two animals which Balancan holds in abundance. The De Dominguez attached at the end was given in honor of the Tabascan revolutionary, Jose Eusebio Dominguez Suarez, a colonel who died during the defense of his municipality of snakes and jaguars in the Constitutionalist Revolt of 1914. It is further believed by some that Tatahuitalpa itself belonged to the nearby province of Acalán, but this is unconfirmed as far as we know. From Balancan, the large force made its way south to the pueblo of Ziguatecpan, also known as Zaguatespan or Zigualtepecat, according to the Nahuatl guides. But all three refer to the place now known as Tenosique, which would later become Tenosique de Piño Suárez, municipal capital of Tenosique. Tenosique has two etymological explanations. One comes from the Maya Tanaj Sik, where Tanaj or Tana means house or place, while seek roughly means to spin, weave, or count threads. Thus, the place is roughly translated to house of the weaver or house of the spinner. This translation is also mirrored in the proposed Nawa origin of the word, coming from the combinations of Suani Tekpan that got morphed into Zigua Tekpan, with Suani meaning spinner or to spin, and Tekpan meaning the same as Tanakh. Thus, we arrive at the all-too-similar-to-be-a-coincidence translation of House of the Spinner. The Piño Suárez part actually comes from future Vice President of Mexico and national hero of the revolution, José María Piño Suárez, who was born in Tenosique in 1869 and whose politically motivated assassination would have massive repercussions for the nascent nation once it occurs in 1913, a full year before the conservative revolution that killed the Dominguez of Balancan in 1914. This place of the weaver, along with another pueblo, Ozumazintlan, would all be found abandoned and so proved unhelpful to the passing conqueror. This is also the beginning of Cortes entering the Acalan province of the Putun Maya, who inhabited the area, an act he accomplished by building even more bridges across the muddy swamps and bogs, bridges which years of disuse and natural wear and tear would leave them destroyed, forcing Alonso de Avila to struggle through the muddy terrain directly as he made his own journey to establish the short-lived Villa de Salamanca de Acalan. Despite these massive construction projects, Cortés would later relate in his fifth Carta de Relaciones, those letters he sent to the Spanish crown to vindicate his actions and conquest, that on this leg of the journey, the Spanish encountered, quote, a grand swamp and most frightening things that anyone has ever seen, that we had to tie grass to the horses so that they would not sink, end quote. It would also be while passing through this region that Cortes is said to have murdered the last emperor of the Aztecs, Cuauhtémoc, out of fear that his presence would foment a massive rebellion among his native retinue and local population. I'm surprised he believed the death of their leader wouldn't immediately push the natives into rebellion anyway. But somehow this plan worked, and he was able to move on into the pueblos of 
Tizatepetl, and then Tuetiercas, finally passing through the Acalan region into Mazatlan or Mazatan on towards Las Hibueras and outside the scope of our focus. Along this month-long excursion through the jungles of Tabasco, Cortez managed to identify several communities which, throughout the years, would come to host several of the cities that would blossom into the various municipal capitals of the modern Tabascan state, most of which were abandoned by their Mayan inhabitants, identified by Nahua guides, and populated by the Spanish, which is why many of the names of this Chontal homeland remain to this day in another language. As Cortés was returning from his trip to Las Hibueras in 1524, he sent his next subordinate, inevitably doomed to fail, back into the meat grinder that Tabasco was becoming, this time one Juan de Vallecillo, who was another of Cortés's captains that joined him on his campaign to Tenochtitlan. Vallecillo entered Tabasco with a detachment of soldiers to pacify the province, but he arrived at La Victoria to find it destroyed and in serious need of new management. He would commit himself to reconstruction, but eventually, a man named Juan de Lepe, one of the first colonists of La Victoria, was reported to have been sent to Cortés to inform the general that, quote, the whole land was at war, end quote. At this point, our story lines up pretty well with the events related in episode 9, The Elder, the Younger, and the Nephew, when Vallecillo would die after putting up a darn good fight against both rebellious natives and personal illness finally losing out to the tinier foe, making way for Baltasar de Osorio y Gallegos to arrive in April of 1527 with the title of Captain of La Victoria and Lieutenant of the Royal Justice, beginning his long career of ruining everything other people had worked hard to accomplish. Baltasar's time and control would see the colonists of La Victoria nobly campaign against the communities of the Chontalpa, specifically Nakashushuka, Tukta, Guaitalpa, Mezateaupa, and Cupilco, attempting to make their inhabitants submit. This push would ultimately fail, and the colonists would return to La Victoria, and things just sort of ended there, until the colonists ran out of food, that is. At that point, the noble soldiers of the Lieutenant of the Royal Justice, and by extension the representatives of the Crown of Spain, devolved into little more than starving river bandits. These men were aware of the many dangers lurking in the jungles, so they refused to leave their stronghold at La Victoria. But once stomachs started to grumble, the canoes would be boarded, and the men proceeded up the Grijalva River to descend upon any unsuspecting and ill-prepared villagers they could reach, plundering maize and any foodstuffs they could find before retreating back to La Victoria to await for hunger to force them back out once again. The going got so tough for the colonists that even Baltasar had to agree that this was no way to run a territory so he eventually traveled to meet with Cortes in Mexico City to plead for more supplies, men, and munitions, all the while crying to his superior about how the villages would be in peace one day and then the next decided to go back to war, quite possibly neglecting how much his men's own actions might be contributing to the problem. Francisco de Montejo would soon come to inherit the problem for two years, before de Osorio y Gallegos convinced the first Audiencia de México to give him back control in 1530, so he could continue to muck things up for five more years, at which point El Adelantado de Yucatán, Francisco de Montejo the Elder, took back control in 1535. During these times, we see Alonso de Avila attempt to retread Cortés' journey to Las Hibueras with a fraction of the men, 
and Francisco Gil would arrive in 1537 with his lieutenant Lorenzo de Godoy to found the community of San Pedro Tanoche in the modern-day site of Tenosique de Pino Suarez. San Pedro Tanoche was named in honor of Gil's captain, Pedro de Alvarado, the Adelantado de Guatemala, and the man who Gil was sent by. This is also the reason why, when Champotón was captured by Gil and Godoy in the last episode, it would be renamed as San Pedro de Champotón, and not something more Montejista, like, say, Salamanca de Champotón. This is apparently due to the deal El Mozo made with Francisco Gil, where the community and citizens of San Pedro Tanoche would be transferred to Champotón, along with the name. I just thought I would clear that little bit of info up since I neglected to do so in the last episode. After Gil and his lieutenant left Champotón, El Mozo is considered the supreme law of the land until 1540, when he leaves La Victoria in the capable hands of Juan de Ledesma, and, along with his cousin, exits the once-proud Choco capital for the last time on a successful campaign to claim La Villa de Mérida in the Yucatán, establishing his true prize, and, in January of 1542, the Montejos officially stopped being the Alcalde Mayores of Tabasco. But hold the phone, I hear you immediately jumping up and saying, I thought the Montejos were governors of Tabasco. What the heck is an Alcalde Mayor? Well, if you will just sit back down and calm yourself, I would love to explain everything. You see, saying that the Montejos were governors of Tabasco was not entirely true. To be a governor, the territory had to be a certain kind of political entity. Tabasco was not yet this kind of entity, but rather more like a municipality within the larger, actually established colony of the Yucatan. Hence why the elder was Adelantado de Yucatan, not Adelantado de Tabasco since Tabasco didn't exactly exist in that way just yet. At this point, it was just a small villa along the coast known as La Victoria, and that about made up all of Tabasco. And it was technically run by an alcalde, which was a title that fell under a governing body known as a cabildo. Alcaldes, by the by, are mayors. And these would be the entities that did the actual governing in the Spanish-American colonies. Before diving into the fascinating world of imperial Spanish titles and offices, we must understand what a cabildo was. Cabildos were first established on the Canary Islands and later exported to the West Indies, American, and Filipino colonies as the highest form of local government in those lands. The term cabildo itself comes from the Latin capitulum, which means head. And so these were the heads of the colonies, and their composition would almost always follow the same structure. The cabildo was also known as the ayuntamiento, consejo, or concilium, which are all just old-timey ways of saying a town hall or municipal council. The cabildo was the ultimate legal representative of the city or town, and the essential municipal organ through which the residents of the colonies faced and dealt with the judicial, administrative, economic, and military problems they would come to encounter in the New World. The colonial cabildo's structure and composition was similar to those of the homeland, but its attributes varied as did its political importance due to the special conditions that the society of the overseas kingdoms and provinces existed in. During the early years of the conquest of the New World, the Cabildo would provide an effective mechanism of representation for any local elites who were increasingly straining against the reach of the royal bureaucracy in Spain. 
many royal provisions would be passed intended to submit these local elites to the authority of the representatives of the Castilian crown. But the distance from the metropolis would force that very crown to accept a high degree of autocracy, at least while the Habsburg kings were in charge. After the Bourbon kings took over in the 18th century, this distance and colonial leash was considerably shortened as the Bourbons focused on establishing tighter grips of control over their far-flung colonies. But these clampdowns resulted in serious problems between colony and mother government. But those rulers and their stories are much further down the road, so let's stick with the current monarchy, as their loose grasps over their colonies would allow for a much greater range of freedom to be enjoyed by the increasingly independently-minded cabildos and their charismatic leaders who often led them. We have already had ample opportunity to witness the birth of several cabildos when the various Salamancas were established by Montejista forces throughout Tabasco, Campeche, and the Yucatan. When a city was founded, the ritual of naming officials would almost always take place, and I said that mayors, judges, and aldermen were chosen. Well, now we can begin giving those elected officials their proper titles and discussing their actual responsibilities. Let's start with the aldermen, who were actually known as regidores, and were introduced earlier in this episode when discussing the tail end of our old and cantankerous friend Rodrigo de Rangel's glittering military career and failures. In the first several decades of the conquest, the Council of the Indies would explicitly decree that only the adelantados, or their immediate agents on the field, were allowed to appoint officials for cities, which, of course, only they could found. This was done in attempts to moderate control over the creation of settlements within the frontier territories, which is why we have seen so few communities established within Tabasco up to this point as El Adelantado assigned to establish communities was busy setting them up anywhere else but here. It would not be until El Adelantado de Yucatan officially left for said Yucatan in 1546 that Tabasco would finally begin to receive some actual attention as far as infrastructure with the establishment of the first villas within the many communities of the Chontalpa we have been discussing in this episode. Early on, the Council of the Indies fully intended to hold a short leash over the American cabildos and councils, much in the way they held the peninsular cabildos in Europe. Pretty soon, though, both council and king realized this would be impossible, given the massive area of land they would have to administer, so very, very far away from them in Spain. This granted the American cabildos some measure of autocracy and self-sufficiency, which inevitably saw them assuming broad powers of government and justice, in certain cases even coming to appoint their own governors, although they would never become fully autonomous due to several reasons, most notably that the passing of legislation would remain the exclusive power of the king and that the power was still recognized as flowing from the crown, and thus the Council of the Indies would establish its own mechanisms for dealing with troublesome cabildos, as we will come to see. Cabildos consisted of many kinds of officials, including the regidores, which we have established were the councilmen who advised and aided the running of the cabildo. Cabildos consisted of many kinds of officials, including the regidores, which we have established were the councilmen who advised and aided the running of the assigned settlement. Depending on the size of the city, there could be as few as four or as many as 24 regidores within a single cabildo. 
These guys would share the responsibilities of administering the territory, and early on in their inception, during the more medieval Reconquista times, they would be elected by all the colonial heads of household. But this form of election, much like in Greek and Roman times, led to violence between factions that developed into such well-entrenched and opposing voting blocs that eventually the king would be forced to step in and appoint certain, or even all of, the regidores of a certain city. By the colonial era, different cabildos were composed of different mixtures of elected and appointed regidores, depending on a complex series of factors that would be specific to each cabildo and its evolution from frontier town to permanent settlement and, in certain cases, all the way to municipal and even colonial capital, an evolution we will be keenly aware of as we track the rise of little Villa Carmona as it transforms into the regional capital of Villa Hermosa. Not to overcomplicate these layers of control, but corregidores would be introduced to act as direct representatives of the king and court to preside over the regidores of the cabildos that got out of line or exerted a little too much independence and self-sufficiency. The court would accept the fact that they could not control everything in the colonies, but that would not stop them from constantly passing laws aimed at establishing some measure of control, and the corregidores was another royal tool in that arsenal. Cabildos also held other, more executive offices like the Alferez Real, or the Royal Standard Bearer, a mostly ceremonial role with a few responsibilities, which included a vote in the Cabildo deliberations, and they could substitute for the head executives in case they were incapacitated or incapable of carrying out the functions of their office. An alguacil would be another important position, which was essentially a sheriff or police commissioner, with the word itself coming originally from the Arabic wazir, meaning minister, a word which would be taken along during the Muslim expansion of the Iberian Peninsula and morphed into the Spanish Arabic al-wazir, and eventually fully corrupted into the Castilian Spanish alguacil. Within the cabildo, there were also various exciting bureaucratic offices, such as the fiel ejecutor, or the faithful executor, a role whose name sounds significantly cooler than its actual function as it involved the inspection of weights and measures, the regulation of markets, overseeing the supplies of the settlement, and most importantly, took care of the municipal sanitation. So a fairly thankless but essential duty that needed to be taken care of. A tesorero and contador, or treasurer and accountant, were in charge of the books, while the teachers and hospital workers in those settlements lucky enough to have schools or hospitals would be employed and paid directly by the cabildos. These jobs all seem fairly standard and have modern equivalents we can look to for examples, but a portero, or porter, is one of those jobs that has been steadily phased out of our modern world, and now the word porter only conjures images of extremely expensive hotels and charming Wes Anderson films. During the time of the cabildos, however, these town hall porters held the super important job of maintaining and cleaning the buildings where the cabildos met for their meetings, including opening and closing its doors for session. This may sound like I'm being frivolous, but it actually was a pretty important job, since it meant that the porter was the only one to call the regidores and mayors to ordinary sessions, but also was the man who took care of the prisoners held in the jail as the jails were often part of the same building where the cabildo met, meaning the porters would also serve as prison wardens, 
and as a result held not only some measure of responsibility towards the maintenance of peace within their village, city, or town of jurisdiction, but also a certain level of power and influence within the cabildo itself, given their close proximity to the members of the council. The building that was the Cabildo Meeting Hall and often jail would perform triple duties, also serving as a judicial center of the city. And here the Cabildo intersected with another institution we have already discussed on the show, the Audiencias, who we will see serve as more of a judiciary branch of colonial government, although we must be careful with these analogies as they only work from our modern point of views with our modern political structures. It is important to remember that there weren't three branches of government or any separation of power theory, as those political ideas were still hundreds of years away from being put down on paper. What we would consider the colonial judicial branch would also be assigned a city attorney, which would be known as a procurador, along with a legal scribe to keep records of all legal proceedings. The audiencias were originally established by the oidores, a term which comes from the verb to listen, oír, and thus were essentially judges in the high courts of Spain sent to the colonial courts to listen to the judicial process, particularly the proceedings where the pleas from the plaintiffs were heard by the judges. These judicial delegates were sent by the Royal Court of the Indies in another attempt to rein in the ambitious conquistadors that had begun getting rather power drunk in their isolation so far from the motherland, and in efforts to combat this unavoidable independence, the Royal Court of the Indies instituted a slightly weaker version of the Audencias than those utilized in the Reconquista of the Iberian Peninsula, with consultative and administrative powers necessary to rule these new world territories. Both the Audencias and eventual viceroys were answerable only to the Council of the Indies, but this unintentionally tied these institutions at the knees and forced them into the same pattern of patiently and agonizingly waiting for drips of information and orders to trickle down from Europe, rendering them as incapable as the king at keeping up with the day-to-day -day events ever shifting within the constantly evolving colonies. This would be why the cabildos actually were the ones to run the show, with limited oversight coming from the audiencias and viceroy, who in essence settled into the reactionary role of supreme judiciary power within the land, becoming a sort of supreme court with various circuits to handle the different levels of colonial crimes that popped up. So the cabildo and its many royal offices represented a quasi-legislative and executive branch, making sure the gears all turned in the right direction, while the Audencias formed the judiciary, making sure those gears turned to the royal will's liking, leaving only the guys who would oftentimes serve as the biggest gear in the machine turning all of the rest. And theirs would become the institution we will encounter and talk about the most during these coming years in Tabasco, the Alcaldes. Remember, the state we have been discussing will not exist as a quote-unquote colony with its own governor for over 200 years, until the appointment of royal governor Nicolas Bulfe in 1776, finally making Tabasco its own official colony separate from Yucatan affairs. Until that point, it was essentially a large municipality under the actual rule of the actual colony of the Yucatan. Tabasco used to be the base of powers until it ceded them in 1542 to the Yucatan with the establishment of the Villa de Mérida by Francisco de Montejo el Mozo, the son of the only man at the time with the powers to make such sweeping political changes, El Adelantado de Yucatán. 
These heads of the cabildo, or heads of the head, if you will, would be represented in a variety of titles and offices with slightly different powers and responsibilities. There were the aforementioned adelantados and viceroys assigned to their respective tasks by the crown. A rung below them, we find the various magistrates, military generals, and governors assigned to massive tracts of territory by either the crown or one of its directly appointed agents, such as an adelantado or viceroy. But in most cases, your average run-of-the-mill leader within the Spanish colonies would be the alcaldes, or the mayors. And because life is never simple, there are a further distinction between two kinds of alcaldes that existed, alcaldes ordinarios and alcaldes mayores, or ordinary mayors and major mayors. The post of alcalde ordinario was introduced to the Americas when it was established by the crown in 1537, and the appointment of the first two alcaldes ordinarios would be the responsibility of a city's founder. Thus, their appointment was tied to the adelantado of the local area, as they were the only ones allowed to found cities and settlements in those early years of conquest. However, after these first mayors were selected by the local conqueror of the region, they would be elected once a year, in an election involving the regidores and other well-to-do men of the settlement, such as the royal standard bearer and perhaps even the local bishop. The election was typically held in January, and the term lasted for a year, ending on New Year's Day. Most places held various restrictions and term limits on the office, while others appeared to have the officials appointing their own successors and much laxer attitudes towards the term limit, which led to some posts falling under hereditary perpetuity, becoming a sort of feudal title passed around within a powerful local family carving out some sort of provincial dynasty that very quickly began resembling feudal Europe in many ways. The ordinary alcaldes were just what they sounded like, they were your average mayors and represented the head officials of the town councils and were considered representatives of the Council of the Indies, and they typically came in pairs, a mayor of the first and a mayor of the second vote, or first and second mayors. These alcaldes ordinarios would be charged with the maintenance of public order and safety, along with the administration of justice in both criminal and civil cases, so mostly concerned with their jurisdiction's direct policing. In this regard, the mayors were also considered the head judges of the city in most cases, with the first mayors customarily specializing in criminal cases, while the second mayors oversaw civil cases. However, these were the lowest rungs of the judicial process, and the oidores and local audiencias would ultimately handle any issues higher than local civil and criminal cases. So it is not like these mayors were also presiding over grand juries and trials, but rather they were the first rung in the colonial judicial circuits meant to weed out any cases deemed too small to garner the higher court's attention. While they were the local judges, when things went above their heads, they always deferred to the audencias for final rulings or administrative disputes and crimes. And it would be their judicial proceedings that the oidores would often sit in and oír, or listen to. These mayors, by and large, held no official training in either law, politics, or formal administration, but these deficiencies were made up for in good judgment and common sense, often coming from the experience they often gained from leading men in war or spiritual congregation. It was generally required that these candidates be considered honest and trustworthy by their populace in order to be elected, and they were often educated enough to read and write. 
They would also require personality and character sensitive to the needs of the average colonist, but also tough enough to handle the harsh realities of frontier life in the American colonies. The post of the alcaldes ordinarios, however, was honorary and came with no pay, which at times resulted in the unintended side effect of the post becoming a burden, since once you were chosen, it was next to impossible to get out of the job, except through serious illness or death, which did happen, but was not the most ideal option for most people who found themselves in this predicament. The job did come with some perks. There was high prestige that came with serving the job well, and particularly well-liked or dedicated alcaldes were often given a house within the city, while preference in housing and other special privileges were often shown to their descendants, which would come in very handy when the dreaded caste system showed up and tried to disinherit many Mexican-born nobles and their offspring from their properties and titles. This role of alcalde would further evolve in 1606 when the system was modified into the posts known as the Alcalde de la Santa Hermanada, or Mayor of the Holy Brotherhood, where one mayor each was assigned to the northern and southern district with equal powers over their prospective zones. And before moving on, it is interesting to note the many similarities these alcaldes ordinarios had with the Roman consulships, where two men were elected for a year to lead the city of Rome. And given Spain's history with the Romans, these similarities actually begin to make a lot of sense. To move further, though, we must start touching on the semantics of population naming, as it's important to pin down the exact jurisdiction a cabildo covered. It would include the urban area, along with the peripheral rural areas that were subordinates to it, such as the countless pueblos, villas, and towns, with populations too small to garner their own cabildo. With that said, a jurisdiction wasn't considered a city until it had its own council. No city, no cabildo. No cabildo, no city. Some communities, such as Santiago Simatan, the spiritual predecessor to Cunduacan, would exist under the cabildo of Santa Maria de la Victoria as a villa, due to its small size and relative lack of importance. A few months later, this villa saw its destruction by its very unwilling villagers. Meanwhile, other communities would be established with a council from their inception, such as many of the Salamancas we have encountered, all established by our friendly neighborhood Adelantado and his agent. To further complicate things, in places like Mexico City, there would have been a viceroy as head of the viceroyalty, then a governor as head of the smaller surrounding municipality of Mexico, and an alcalde as mayor of the even smaller but just as important city itself. These convoluted situations were few and far between, but just give a taste of the multi-layered political web that was beginning to weave itself across all these newly conquered lands. I bring this up now as the alcaldes were allowed to fill in for their governors as heads of the cabildos, if both governor and lieutenant governor were out of the city or indisposed. But here we begin to touch on the difference between ordinario and mayor, since a population as big as Mexico City would have had alcaldes mayores rather than alcaldes ordinarios. And this was basically the distinction. Alcaldes mayores would exist in the limbo area between regular city alcalde ordinarios and full-on colonial governor, with these slightly larger mayors occupying the gray space in between. So that leaves the whole reason I did this entire review on cabildos, was so that I could introduce the alcaldes mayores. According to the Encyclopedia of Latin American History and Culture by Mark A. Burkholder, 
An alcalde mayor is essentially a mayor of mayors or supreme mayor. These guys were the big bad regional officials that had judicial, administrative, and military authority over their given jurisdictions. And these jurisdictions could be vast indeed. Their powers superseded those of a regular alcalde or mayors, and their area of territorial jurisdictions were also called alcaldías mayores, with judicial appeals from the decisions of an alcalde mayor only heard by an audiencia. They represented the very clear departure from the utilization of wild frontier-like management necessitating adelantados and mandates of conquest to a more mundane and civilized mission of colonization, administration, and conversion with clear goals of total regional pacification. Adelantados were sent in to stir up the hornet's nest and exterminate the problems that spilled out. Alcaldes mayores were then sent in to build and manage infrastructure to ensure the problems did not come back. While the system of alcalde mayor existed as early as 1348, it saw considerable use in the South American colonies, where a lot more of the information about them is collected. The role would exist until 1786, when the alcaldías, their functions, and their powers were split between subdelegates, judges, and various gubernatorial and economic administrative authorities that showed the extremely early signs of modern political functions and roles. And so, in Tabasco, the role of Alcalde Ordinario de la Victoria became the Alcalde Mayor de Tabasco once the Montejos left the region to establish the Yucatán. And it would be this series of Alcaldes Mayores de Tabasco that we will follow for the next few decades, as the territory struggles with internal rebellions, organization, and eventually a certain watery menace I keep name-dropping, the coming international coalition of pirates. In 1540, as a substitute for the departing El Mozo, Juan de Ledesma was selected as Interim Alcalde Mayor, an appointment which ended up extending for the next several years, as Interim Alcalde Mayor de Ledesma organized various military campaigns aiming at exacting Spanish control over the Chontalpa, but specifically the Cimatan region. And much like those before him, he failed after five long years of campaigning. The massive expenditure of men, resources, and energy put into these campaigns, already not enough to complete the task at hand, began to drastically diminish year after year, with the Alcalde Mayor of Tabasco constantly looking towards its governor and government in the Yucatan to provide aid and support. Aid and support which did eventually arrive, but never in the time or amount that was needed to get the job done. Juan's biggest accomplishment despite his efforts is sadly limited to successfully overseeing the transfer of Tabasco into the control of the Audencia de los Confines for the next 17 years. Juan de Ledesma would hand his powers off to Marcos de Ayala Trujeque in 1545, who would make a most respectable thrust into Simatán and manage to push the Simantecos out of their cities and into the surrounding hills and mountains. He then established the aforementioned Santiago Simatán, predecessor to municipal capital Natividad de Cunduacán. But Santiago Simatán would last for a mere handful of months before the Simantecos poured back out of their hiding spots to completely dismantle the new settlement. This one-year tenure of Marcos de Ayala Trujeque would then see Alonso de Bazán y Herrera take the stage. If you recall in the last episode, 
This was the man who, Dr. Diogenes claims, had found himself in a land dispute with the Montejo clan over a seized property from one of El Adelantado de Yucatan's less famous and much younger nephews. There, I made it seem like Alonso de Bazan and his fellow conspirator, Alonso de Bayon, were just two evil dudes out to make a quick buck and steal sweets from small children. Well, as it turns out, Bazan may have been a scheming land thief, sure, but he also happened to be the most successful of the men to push into Simatan and likely used the funds gained from his many land seizures to finally establish the foothold that would eventually open the door to Chontalpa pacification. He would start this task by establishing a permanent villa as the head of a new municipality which he named the Chontalpa. And from this spear's tip, the Spanish would finally penetrate into the belly of this rebellious land to exert their rule. Let's take a quick detour to explore who this man was before he came to the New World to establish control over the place that had rejected campaign after campaign from equally dedicated men. Alonso de Bazan y Herrera was likely born in Cuellar, Spain, sometime in the late 1400s, as a hidalgo of well-connected family with ties to the Marquis of Santa Cruz, although his exact date of birth does not appear to have been recorded. In fact, any information on the guy is hard to pin down with certainty, but it appears he participated in the conquest of Mexico with Cortés, returned to Spain, and did the Elder Montejo thing of marrying in a socially upward direction. He selected for his wife one Francesca Verdugo, heiress of the captain Francisco Verdugo, and niece of the Cuban governor Diego de Velázquez y Cuellar. And together, the wealthy Francesca and daring Alonso de Bazán would have many children. In 1535, Alonso de Bazán crossed the pond with his growing family to head for Nueva España after claiming his wife's inheritance, a.k.a. Francisco Verdugo's many estates throughout the Spanish Netherlands in the land called Flanders. Bazán would arrive in time to participate in the campaigns to pacify Nueva Galicia, a.k.a. Jalisco, of 1541, the Mixton War, which we last heard mentioned when discussing the anticlimactic end of Pedro de Alvarado's cruel life. Unlike de Alvarado, Bazán would taste numerous successes in Nueva Galicia and thus was handed the job of Alcalde Mayor de Tabasco in 1546 after the failed tenure of Marcos de Ayala Trujeque. He continued where his predecessor had left off by campaigning in the Chontalpa, starting with an attempt to re-establish the Villa of Santiago Simatán, which was recently destroyed, but this also proved to be a failure. So Bazan left for a few months to go and do what troubled Tabascan leaders did so naturally, beg for help from Mexico City, which he got, and with the Viceroy Mendoza's blessing, returned with fresh men and resources to get the job done. This all culminated in 1549, when Bazan ordered the founding of the Villa de Xalpa in the modern-day location of Jalpa de Mendez. This, at long last, would be the first village to not immediately be destroyed, but rather survive into modern times. Bazan intended to name it the capital of the surrounding municipality of the Chontalpa, thus essentially forcing the establishment of a cabildo, meaning certain elites would move in, bringing with them their families, which in turn would mean more soldiers to protect said families, meaning more families in general, meaning more and more order and stability, until, wouldn't you know it, the area was pacified. And it would be this plan that finally worked. Thus, the foundation of Xalpa is considered the first permanent Spanish settlement in the area. 
A cabildo would indeed be formed, and the community would begin to flourish, but Bazan would not be there to enjoy any of it, for the credit of founding this community would be handed off, along with his rule of Tabasco, to the brief Alonso de Manrique, who took over in the beginning of 1550, before the community of Xalpa was allowed to prove its worth. However, Alonso de Bazan y Herrera is still remembered to this day in Jalpa de Mendez as one of the city's original founders. Before moving on from the region, now would be a good time as any to explain the word Xalpa, which comes from the Nahuatl, Xal, and Pan. Xal refers to Xali, which is sand or sandbank, while Pan, we all know as the topographical denomination, referring to being located above, over, or among something. So Xalpa literally means a place atop the sand, or place along the sandbank. The current name of the municipal and capital city, however, is Jalpa de Mendez, and the Mendez was added in honor of a famous son of the city and Tabascan hero, the Colonel Gregorio Mendez Magaña, who will earn his fame and spot on our show during the fierce and surprisingly successful Tabascan resistance of the Second French Incursion in the later half of the 19th century. So we will have to wait a bit for the 27th of February, 1864, and the famous Batalla de El Aguactal, with El Aguactal supposedly the name of the village in Cunduacan, where the famous battle was fought. Turning back to Don Alonso de Manrique, he was born the son of a nobleman hailing from Valladolid in Spain. Manrique likely lived an early life of pampered child, but seemed to be unable to resist the pull of the Americas when he signed up for the conquering forces in 1535 with one Pedro de Mendoza, headed for the Rio de Plata, the location now shared by South American giants Brazil and Argentina in the River Plate Basin. He then hitched along with the Montejos as another of his many captains named Alonso during his campaigns in Tabasco of the 1530s. Manrique later would accompany one of these other Alonzos, this time our old friend Alonso de Avila, on his campaign to claim Nueva Galicia. This move left Alonso de Manrique broke and destitute, following many complications in said Galician campaigns. Nevertheless, he would still be named Alcalde Mayor del Espíritu Santo, a.k.a. modern-day Coatzacoalcos in Veracruz, by Viceroy Antonio de Mendoza, where he would be ruling when it was his turn to take the helm of the troubled territory of Tabasco. Our story is now picked up by Dr. Diogenes Lopez Reyes, who relays that on the 18th of September, 1550, Don Alonso de Manrique was appointed by Viceroy Don Antonio de Mendoza and the Audencia de Mexico as the Alcalde Mayor de Tabasco. He was given a hearty list of duties and responsibilities, which gave him a mountain of work to accomplish, but provides us with an interesting glimpse at the kinds of things that were expected of these office holders by their superiors. As Alcalde Mayor of Coatzacoalcos, Diogenes claims he was receiving 800 gold pesos a month, but that income would be shared among the following totally reasonable and very achievable goals. Protect and defend the natives. Don't force them to work. Don't insult them. Don't ask for more tribute than Spanish colonists had to pay. And avoid doing anything to annoy them. Basically, anything necessary to avoid another outbreak of rebellion. It seems the viceroy was getting sick of all the rebellion and wanted to try something new, so he charged his new alcalde mayor with attempting peace this time rather than go for straight-out war. Manrique would also be charged with the appointment of a proper porter and alguacil, positions previous tenants of the job had neglected to appoint, 
and the orders appeared to specify the porter's salary of 200 gold pesos per year. Manrique was required to present his charges to the current cabildo in La Victoria to officially recognize him, then reside in either Coatzacoalcos or Victoria, the choice was up to him, and he was also meant to eliminate the tribute requirements of the Simatan natives while they were in peace, not to disrupt the vital trade blossoming along the rivers, to forbid the Spanish from harassing the natives, who should not be burdened with work, and oddly enough, the order seemed to include not traveling in hammocks, and your guess is as good as mine as to why they shouldn't do that. Diogenes is pretty light on the details with this one. Manrique would also be asked that the Christian doctrine be shared without forcing it on the natives, since they were to receive it voluntarily and by persuasion, without urgency, and that the natives of the Yucatan, who were kept in Coatzacoalcos or Tabasco, be returned to their land and be paid what was owed to them, in an effort to pacify their relatives within the rebellious regions. These indigenous slaves were to be given their absolute freedom, but required to report the towns they belonged to and how many people lived within those settlements. Manrique would then submit this very early, if not crude, attempt at a collection of census data back to the Audencia and the royal court so that they could determine how many royal officers were needed within the province and, most importantly, how many royal taxes to collect. Finally, Diogenes mentions that Manrique was also required to report if it was true that the cacao planting had been disrupted due to cruel encomenderos taking so much food from their free laborers that it was forcing the indigenous people to stop planting cacao to instead plant crops necessary for their survival, which apparently was having a domino effect on the production of cacao so profound that it was being felt back in the pockets of the merchants in Spain, who were really making the big bucks off of the emerging cacao and chocolate economy. This is just a quick glimpse of the economic struggles that Tabascan alcalde mayores would face during these early years and the emerging decline of cacao and the coming explosion of new resources that would breathe economic life into the relatively poor and harsh region. Despite having such a large task list, accomplishing much during his short tenure, and possessing all the experience and energy to get the job done, Alonso de Manrique would only be given a year to accomplish his monumental tasks and in September of 1551, he handed the supreme mayorship of Tabasco to a previous holder of the position, Marcos de Ayala Trujeque. For reasons Diogenes helpfully omits, Marcos Trujeque would not be tied down with all the rules and charges the viceroy had given Alonso Manrique before him, and I'll share with you my running theory as to why this was. I believe that by the time his second tenure as Alcalde Mayor came around, Marcos de Ayala Trujeque had shored up enough support within the Audencia de los Confines to shield him from any potential pushback in case some bleeding-heart liberals sent angrily worded letters to the king. However, it's just as likely that after a year of offering peaceful treatment to the Chontalpa, the Simantecos instead traded arrows for carrots, and instead of peace, committed themselves to all-out war. Whatever the reason, the end result would be the same, and Trujeque returned with a whole bunch of his own sticks to replace the carrots his predecessors had unsuccessfully solicited. Trujeque would utilize the staging point that was the Villa de Chalpa, and from there launched a flurry of long and bloody campaigns against the obstinate Simantecos, who stubbornly resisted for nine long years, during which time all the energy and resources of the colony were directed and focused on the pacification and further settlement of the Chontalpa.
by 1560, the villas of Nakashushuka, Huimango, Anta, Cupilco, Bucuyapa, and Cocultiupa all had their names mentioned in the royal records as being established under the Cabildo de Xalpa, with Cocultiupa later being combined with Simatan to form the municipal capital of Natividad de Cunduacan. 1560 would also be the year that the colony of Tabasco, along with those of the Yucatan and Campeche, would cease to depend on the Audencia de los Confines and return to the Audencia de México, which doesn't actually change much for our story, so we can mercifully see this change come and go without having to delve into any complex and slightly dry colonial administrative history. What we can't escape is the ecclesiastical history, as this change would be precipitated, according to some sources, Diogenes included, due to the insistence of the Franciscan monks who had thoroughly replaced the Montejos as ultimate rulers of the Yucatan by this point. They were unhappy with the sort of men the Audencia de los Confines was sending, men much like Manrique, who far too often displayed tendencies towards violence and punishment rather than patience and understanding, qualities the monks believed were better suited when assimilating an unwilling native population. Thus, by royal decree on January 9, 1560, Yucatan, Tabasco, and Cozumel ceased to depend on the Audencia de los Confines, based in Guatemala, to once again subordinate itself under the Audencia de México. This royal decree was officially promulgated on May 20, 1561, in the Yucatan and Cozumel, and three months later in Tabasco. In the same year of 1561, the Franciscans would further expand their seizure of power when another royal decree was distributed, naming the province of Tabasco under the bishopric of the Yucatan. In this way, Tabasco would become an extension and inexorably tied to the Franciscan bishops of Yucatan, who from this point on will begin to amass vast tracts of land, wealth, power, and influence. So we will see just how long these holy men resist the temptations that power offers. Despite all the effort Trujeque would put towards braving the tempestuous storm of arrows and spears necessary to achieve Simanteco's subjugation, he would miss out on the honor of claiming the credit for the job, and instead his successor, Alonso Gomez Sotomayor, would get the distinct pleasure and recognition of proclaiming the Chontalpa fully pacified in 1564, a full 45 years after the initial expeditions by Hernán Cortés to claim the plains of maize outside of Potonchan, known as the Fields of Centla, way back in 1519. And I would briefly like to correct the mistake I made in the previous episode, where I said the Simantecos were in rebellion until 1664, which, upon rereading the source I was looking at, yeah, I just straight messed that one up, so that's my mistake but let me correct it now, since it is now 1564, and the Simantecos finally, honestly, totally not playing here, 100% for real promised to stop rebelling. And for a while, they would keep that promise, which meant during that time, all the native tribes of Tabasco had officially been pacified by the Spanish and would remain quiet, until the Mayan rebellions of the 1660s, that is. But we will get to that fun inferno of violence another time. By this point in 1564, however, it hadn't been the soldiers and their guns that had done most of the work, but rather it would be the many tiny bacteria and viruses they brought along with them that ultimately brought the proud Simantecos to their knees. These tiny enemies would turn the Simantecos' greatest advantage against them, the swamps, which were not only teeming with millions of mosquitoes gorging themselves daily, 
but also rats and other pests that indiscriminately spread illnesses. And while both Spanish and Nahua communities would come down with deadly outbreaks of diseases, given the size of some of these native population zones, such as the Chontalpa, they suffered disproportionately higher numbers of casualties for decades longer. Until the survivors were left reeling and completely at the mercy of the now much more even-looking number of Spanish soldiers. It's important to note that this massive loss of life would not be limited to Tabasco. In fact, things had been bad for the natives since the very beginning, with the smallpox epidemic of 1519 to 1520 quietly killing an estimated 5 million to 8 million people in the background, all while we have been focused on a number of Spanish nobles having a grand old time just running around and conquering. But those outbreaks would be a viral warm-up round, and from 1545 to 1548, the real epidemic would strike, the epidemic of Cocolitzli, named after the Nahuatl word for pest, due to the fact that the disease would be transmitted by rodent and insect hosts. The Cocolitzli would explode and kill an estimated 12 to 15 million people, or around 80% of the remaining native population of Mexico. The Cocolitzli epidemic is a bit mysterious, as people back then did not live long enough to describe its symptoms very well, but they were witnessed firsthand and recorded by the Spanish physician Francisco Hernández de Toledo, who described the following symptoms. And warning in case you are easily grossed out, since medical stuff can always be some level of discomforting, and the following is definitely not for the easily discomforted. Also, if you are playing this out loud, now would be a good time to turn it down. Again, fair warning. And feel free to skip a minute ahead if you would like to not risk it on this part. Okay? Ready? Here we go. The symptoms read like a medical ad's possible side effects, but physician Francisco Hernández de Toledo described high fever, severe headaches, vertigo, black tongue, dark urine, dysentery, severe abdominal and chest pains, head and neck nodules, Neurological disorders, jaundice, which is yellow or green pigmentation of the skin, and profuse bleeding from the nose, eyes, and mouth. Other sources also described spotted skin, gastrointestinal hemorrhaging, bloody diarrhea, and bleeding from the eyes, mouth, and vagina. The onset of the disease was recorded as being rapid and often without any symptoms to indicate one was sick. The only mercy this epidemic seems to have afforded its victims was a short wait for death, often occurring within a week of the first symptoms, or for the really lucky ones, in as few as three or four days. Its efficiency was so rapid that it proved difficult to recognize its existence in the archaeological record, as it did not leave markings, called lesions, on its victims' bones, despite causing massive damage to basically every vital bodily system. Despite it causing so much death, we still do not know the exact culprit behind the Cocolitzli outbreaks, with a European disease being the most likely candidate, and mumps, measles, smallpox, and even flu considered at one point. Yet, it's become apparent to medical people much smarter than I that none of these diseases matched the symptoms described by men who witnessed them firsthand like de Toledo, such as high fevers, headaches, and all the bleeding from undesired locations. So, a team of German researchers from the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History 
and the Institute for Archaeological Sciences of Tübingen University analyzed the DNA embedded in the teeth of individuals recovered from some of the mass graves where the Kokolitzli's victims were buried. And at long last, the German team was able to identify a strain of the Salmonella enterica bacteria as being the most likely cause of the epidemic. Yes, the same bacteria that makes eating raw chicken and eggs so dangerous. This bacteria seems to check all of the boxes of the Kokolitzli and can even be seen infecting and reducing European populations for 300 years before they managed to develop immunities to these bacterial strains which they brought with them to the New World where the American immune systems would prove woefully underprepared to handle the introduction. I must also mention that the German team who came to these conclusions still does not rule out the countless other pathogens who were running rampant across the highly susceptible populations of the New World. Pathogens which likely would have claimed far more casualties had Salmonella enterica not been so fatally efficient at its mandate of death. While we will talk more about Kokolitzli and its impacts later, as its effects are most well documented in the Aztec communities it decimated, I wanted to give you an idea of the scale, according to the National Library of Medicine. Quote, The 1545 epidemic was one of the worst demographic catastrophes in human history, approaching even the Black Death of bubonic plague, which killed approximately 25 million in Western Europe from 1347 to 1351, or about 50% of the regional population. End quote. Here in Mexico, we have a lower number of dead, but a higher percentage of the total population just gone. So the effects to society and the survivors' psychological states are unfathomable from our lofty perspectives in history. What had been originally discovered as a land of an estimated 22 million diverse and unique people in 1520, a mere 80 years later had dropped by nearly 95% to a heartbreakingly small amount of around 1 million throughout all of Mexico. Thankfully, these numbers would bounce back throughout the decades and centuries to come, and miraculously, many of the native customs, languages, and religions survived this extinction-level event to reach us into the present day. But this will not be the last time we hear of the Cocolitzli epidemic and the changes it forced upon Mexico and its people. Despite all the conquests we have been tracking going in and out of the Chontalpa, it would be these minute visitors that ultimately participated in the unseen conquest that eventually dragged the native populations low enough to leave nothing for the conquering Spanish to do but simply move into the dozens of ghost towns the Cocolitzli left behind. Alonso Gomez de Sotomayor, meanwhile, would be in power from 1561 to 1577, and three important things happened during his 16-year term as major mayor. The first we have just gone over, and that is that the Chontalpa was finally in peace after the region's biggest instigators, the Simantecos, had finally been defeated through a mixture of guns, attrition, and epidemic levels of diseases raging across the native populace. This touches on the second important thing that happened during his reign, and that is that the diminishing native population increasingly turned to the church for their quote-unquote salvation in an effort to make sense of and cope with the massive amounts of death they were seeing every day of their lives. This would spur the further development of the church, with missionary orders starting to seek permission to develop their own communities in order to reach the natives directly and begin the conquest of the mind. Within Tabasco, we see this really take off 
with the founding of the convent of Santo Domingo de Guzman in the city of Oxolotán. Founded in the mountainous municipality of Teapa in 1572 by Franciscan monks and completed by the Dominicans in 1633. This community would be developed into a town much in the way future magic town Tapijulapa would be founded, first as a religious convent or church, which grew to expand the original native settlement and eventually take on its name. The constant flow of monks, friars, bishops, and other religious figures to Oxolotán would stimulate the local economy and allow it to keep relative ties with the larger communities growing in La Victoria, the Chontalpa, Teapa, and further south in Chiapas. But the third and perhaps biggest thing Alcalde Mayor Alonso Gómez Sotomayor did during his stay in power was stay the heck out of the way of more energetic and influential men. In this case, the Oidor de las Audencias de los Confines, one Diego de Quijada, who was about to arrive and both found La Villa Carmona in the spot where Villa Hermosa would soon flourish and commit as many crimes as he possibly could in his short time in charge. Then try to make as clean a getaway as he could while his many enemies tried their best to catch up to him. So we will stop here after having gone through a bit of a roller coaster of Chontalpa conquest. We began with Cortes, then saw Luis Marin and Bernal Diaz see just how hard the Simantecos would prove to fight. Then Rodrigo Rangel, Leroy Jenkins his way to defeat, and eventually Cortes decided to get something done right by doing it himself and leads a massive force of over 3,000 Spanish and native soldiers on a land expedition to Las Gibueras to give his mutinous lieutenant a firm talking to. Along the way, he maps out much of the Tabascan territory, a map utilized by future Tabascan leader Juan de Vallecillo, Baltasar de Osorio y Gallegos, and the Montejos to follow and fill out throughout their reigns. The region would not see any significant gains until Alonso de Bazán y Herrera and Marcos de Ayala Trujeque engaged in a series of Chontalpa campaigns after Alonso de Manrique got nothing but arrows for his carrots. After nine years of fighting against them, Trujeque would see Alonso Gomez Sotomayor come in and take all of the credit, despite the Spanish diseases doing most of the actual work. Along the way, we described what a cabildo was and gave the place names to a load of locations that still exist within Tabasco to this day. In our next episode, we will see the crowning of a new king in Spain and contemplate what that means for the Tabascan territory. We will also cover the arrival by sea of one very impactful figure, the coming whirlwind of activity that was the oidor Diego de Quijada, whose many actions will finally force me to go over those royal taxes I mentioned last episode, but I avoided this episode to spare both of us from that level of pain. We will more excitedly jump back a few years to 1557 to see another arrival by sea that will come to detriment the developing communities of Tabasco rather than aid them. That of course being the arrival of the Corsairs to the Bay of Campeche and specifically their initial overtaking of the Bay of Tris, which starting in 1558 would serve as their home base for nearly 150 years. And from this home base, they would terrorize this neck of the Atlantic until 1704, resulting in the abandonment of many coastal communities within Tabasco, and leading to the establishment of more inland communities and settlements, many of which remain important to Tabascan life and identity into the modern day. And that about does it for this episode. 
Do not forget to please reach out if you have any questions, concerns, or comments at the email thehistoriesofmexico at gmail.com. And I'll see you all in the next one. As always, thank you for listening. Gracias y que viva bien. Adios and goodbye for now. ¡A la vuelta! Rosa legendaria, que son los hijos del sol. Raza legendaria, que son los hijos del sol. Y tienen la piel morena, y enchido el corazón. Y tienen la piel morena, y enchido el corazón. Camino de la Chontalpa, voy cantando esta canción. Camino de la Chontalpa, voy cantando esta canción. Junto a estos versos vuela todito mi corazón. Junto a estos versos vuela todito mi corazón. Ay, 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 ay. Zumba.